Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. Hello. And welcome. To Historically Really Good Friends. A queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Fembleau. Hello. Ooh, I'm switching it up now. Yeah, that was really nice. Thank you. I'm really glad that you liked it. I did Did it all for you. Did you plan it, or was that just like off off the cusp? Um, I think it's cuff. Off off the cuff. Yeah. Um. Okay. Sorry to answer your question. Right. But yeah, it wasn't. I went for it. I appreciate the confidence. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I get a little nervous because. We record that, as you know, Jared, mm-hmm. we record mm-hmm. that intro every time. We play our little music mm-hmm. and record our intro. And so there's a lot of thinking time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in between the, the playing of the intro and then like us kind of having this mm-hmm. very organic, authentic conversation. <laughs> and my <laughs> brain is trying to tell me how to be a person in that like mm. four seconds. So okay. I don't think it was planned, but it but probably- it it did. It happened. Okay. Yes. Yeah. My my brain doesn't tell me anything. It does. My brain shuts off entirely. Just smooth brain, just yeah. fully nothing. Nothing I, happening. I black out as soon as we start recording, and then as okay. soon as we're done, I'm just like back. I'm back to it. I'm no, back I. In it. I definitely get that. There are times I like wake up in the middle of the night. And I'm like. <gasps> podcast if we record the podcast you know what did i say this whole podcast i think is maybe just our fever dream our collective (laughs) cross-country fever dream it's not real (laughs) it's no none of it is we're like we are characters in some kind of movie hashtag main character moment people don't hashtag anymore oh that was cringy of me do they out loud like I just did? Uh, no, I don't think anybody ever hashtag okay. out loud. I mean, it doesn't have to be so. that rude. I just, I'm not, I'm not very like trendy. I don't. Wait, did you just say I don't have to be that rude? Yeah, you don't have to be that rude. You called me a short little man in the, a previous episode. I'm just gonna you, bring that up. You I wanted did, me to I, fight I didn't ask with you. To call- <laughs> You asked me to fight with you. You said I want to fight or something right. along those lines. But you it know what? True. I drank a kombucha for the first time the other day, so I'm a changed woman. I'm I'm okay. a new person, so I apologize for anything that I've done before Wednesday. I'm sorry okay. because that was the day that I tried. Kombucha. <laughs> you drank a kombucha. <laughs> yes, yes, it was pretty good. It smelled like vinegar, but it tasted all right. It is pretty fine. Kombucha is that like is like a weird thing. I like it and I'll I'll drink it, but it's like weirdly fizzy and also there's like. A thing that's alive in it at the bottom and it makes me think mm-hmm. of like insects i know it's not and i know it's not alive in the sense of like an insect is alive sure but just like the f- the things it's bacteria it. it's like active yeah. bacteria the, the fact that the the like main bacteria thing that they take it from is called like the mother the mother like. it's threatening it. it's I so aggressive it. every yeah. Every like sci-fi horror film that I like is called like something like I am your mother or like the mother. Like nothing good can come from kombucha. I went through a phase. Well, I quit very early on, but people close to me went through a um, like apple cider vinegar shot phase Mm, of like a day. That was my family. Yeah. And I'm sure it's very healthy, but I I could not do it. It's disgusting. But it's the same thing. It has the Uh mother in it and it does give me very bad vibes. I don't know what that means. I don't it. like it. It's, it's a lot. It's, it certainly it. is a mother. Like it's a mother mm-hmm. and it, it's freaky and it gives me yeah. like, it feels aggressive. It feels like an attack directly on me. Mm-hmm. Bacterial. But, yeah. All that to say, I was nervous about that. Uh-huh. The, the live bacterias and stuff. Although I eat a lot uh-huh. of yogurt. I'm a big yogurt gal. But <laughs> if you must know one thing about me, so I'm a big <laughs> yogurt gal. But the kind that I had didn't have any like particles in it. Like I wasn't like oh. st- having to strain any mother out of like while I was sipping. So it was no, nice. You're supposed to, you're, that's what you're supposed to, that's what is good for your gut biome. Okay. Well maybe it was in there, but I also, was... <laughs> well, here's the thing. I didn't uh-huh. know. This is a very real story. The first time I tried kombucha, I did not know that much about it. I knew it was mm-hmm. bubbly, but I was also nervous that there would be, 
particles in it. So -hmm. for some reason, I was driving my sister's car. So sorry, Megan. I shook it. I like turned it all around (laughs) to like shake up to like shake up the like pieces because I didn't want them all just sitting there and it that is fully exploded cbs parking lot eight o'clock in the morning that's very dangerous everywhere dangerous yes do not shake a kombucha okay that's like a pressurizing appropriate word though it feels it i don't i mean it feels very dangerous okay what if the glass shatters and goes everywhere oh i guess you're okay i guess you're right i guess you are right Yes, you're right. I I thought you. I guess I didn't know what you meant. I okay. It could be a potential hazard, hazard. like shrapnel or something. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't shake your kombucha. It could be a hazard, or your sister's car will smell like vinegar. Mm-hmm. Let's just. Why don't we just put kombucha behind us as a as a nation? No, I I but I enjoyed it. Now that you're into it. I did kind of like it. What still does piss me off, though, and I think we can okay. agree to get rid of, is alcoholic kombucha. No, just drink. That's the, that's no, no, the no. kombucha that that's the that's the kombucha no. I like. Here's okay. what I'll say about hard kombucha. It bothers me because just like drink alcohol, like alcohol is not <laughs> healthy for you. So like, why are you gonna mix okay. it with alcohol? With like, please, no. I- also just the police police or alcohol police but like i just don't understand why you need to mix the two because kombucha is not like i don't know i liked it but i'm not like craving a kombucha necessarily so like why do you need to be drinking a fermented bacteria beverage just like drink alcohol you don't need to do both don't pretend kombucha kombucha is naturally alcoholic all kombucha like i drank it at work so like not that not a lot <laughs> right? Really concerned. No, it's all kombucha is naturally alcoholic, but it's not of levels that are going to get you drunk. Like there are kombuchas that are high levels of alcohol that will get you drunk, but all kombucha is alcoholic. If my boss is listening to no, this, I promise it's I not, wasn't. No, it's not an alcoholic beverage in the same sense unless it's high whatever. This is too much talk. Okay, about it's the okay, okay, all right. I'm sorry, I just got really into it. Thank you for. I forgot what we were doing for a second. <laughs> so we are here to record our podcast, not we are. to talk about the various benefits or not mm-hmm. of kombucha. So let's do that. Yeah, let's. We'll get into our stories in a second. I do want to say that. Um, again, like last week, we have a few listener stories that we're going to be reading at the end of the episode. So please stick around to the end. And if you yourself have a story, like coming out story or like moment you knew you were queer or there's a queer figure in your life that really means a lot to you and you kind of want to tell us about that person because they won't get the recognition that a lot of these celebrities get that we talk about on this podcast, please feel free to write in at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com and we'll read it on the pod. With that being said, let's jump into our stories. Let's do it. I am very excited for today, which I feel like I say that every week, but I am excited every week. I think we can practice gratitude in our small ways every day. Sure. Reflect on that, Jared. Have a mini crisis while I talk about some mystery wedding photos. So this is on our uh, little topic list that Jared and I keep kind of track of our topics and what we might be interested in talking about. And I honestly, it just said mystery photos, 1957. And I was like, what is it? And it truly is an unsolved mystery that we're going to dive into today. Are you ready? You got your like super sleuth cap on? I don't know. I love the game Clue. Love the movie suck at it okay i'm not good but You're bad at I, the game clue yeah not good okay but i love mystery i love mm. the thought of a mystery so i've never been more ready for something in my entire life than this story okay just worlds colliding in um, an amazing way absolutely 
So sources that I used include the mystery photos of a 1957 gay wedding from the BBC, our One Story website and Facebook page, the Love You Wedding article by Deanna T., a GCN article titled Docu-Series Will Uncover Mystery of Gay Wedding Photos from 1957 by Oisin Kenny, and then LGBTQHistory.org Timeline of LGBTQ Rights in American History. Ready? Mm-hmm. All right. So some of our listeners might have insight into this mystery. Some may have heard of it before. Some may not have. But it kind of paints a picture, maybe, and, like, is part of a larger puzzle of what life was like for same-sex couples in the 20th century. In kind of, like, either way, if you know a little bit about this, if you know nothing about this, we're going to kind of, like, break into our Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Sherlock era, which I feel like all of those could have a queer subtext. Either way. This mystery concerns a gay couple in 1957 Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I kind of wanted to start with a brief timeline of sort of like LGBTQIA plus policy and rights from the 1950s, some of which may be familiar to our regular listeners. This might sound familiar from previous episodes, but I sort of wanted to map out a little bit of where we are. So in 1950, Congress releases a report titled quote, employment of homosexuals and other sex perverts in government, unquote, which takes the, yep, I see your face, Jared. It Mm -hmm. is a lot. It's, It's a lot. Okay. So this report essentially takes the American Psychiatric Association's diagnosis, which we've talked about previously, that homosexuality is a mental illness. And takes that and interprets it to mean that queer people somehow pose security risks to like the whole nation just like work that like queer people are just like a fundamental threat to national security and so like that feels so dramatic like really congress was just like bringing the drama yeah because that is too that's too much so they were fully like if like homosexuality is internal mental illness then like mentally ill people more broadly pose a threat like including right. specifically quote unquote sex perverts and like i don't know sex what they perverts. mean by like security threat also because here's the thing it's mm-hmm. so funny because we've talked about this before but you can't have it both ways you can't be like queer people are like fundamentally weaker and not good and all of these things and mentally ill and all these things, but then also be like, but together they can take down our entire country. (laughs) Watch out, bitches. We will. Yeah. So that's a lot. But then also on top of this, President Dwight D. Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10450, which there's a lot of numbers, so sorry if there's a different way to pronounce that. Like 10450, I don't know. Either way, it banned, quote, homosexuals from working in the government because of their supposed security risks. And this policy, this executive order was in effect until 1993 with the passage of Don't Ask, Don't Tell under Bill Clinton, which in and of itself was problematic. But wait, 1993? Yeah, 1993. Work in the government? No, because of their... Like, openly. Sec- yeah, because of their because security risks. they were going to take down this nation. Truly, because mm-hmm. if you are queer, you are immediately, like, an anarchist. So, can't okay. have that. This brings to mind, for me, a couple of things immediately. Which, one, I'm sorry that your name is Dwight D. Eisenhower. But it really feels like you need to work on that and, like, stop taking it out on other people. Like, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it's not everyone else's fault. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and, like, woo-woo, like, red alarms here. Um, This is a little bit of an unrelated political commentary ahead, so look out. This is a direct call to Joe Biden because I know you'll find this podcast eventually. You have to. Executive orders in the past were used for far worse. So it's time to cancel student debt. Thank you very much. End of that. So this same year, 1953, 
uh, former historically really good friend subject and American sexologist Alfred Kinsey published Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, which was his second book, and it completed what we refer to today as the Kinsey Papers. 1954 brings a sort of end to segregation in schools with Brown versus Board of Education, which found that Plessy v. Ferguson or the separate but equal law was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, which is the same amendment that would later decide Obergefell versus Hodges and federally legalize same-sex marriage and is currently what houses the decision on abortion rights. Anyway. Mm. By 1957, Frank Kamini had been released from his government job because of the executive order mentioned above, even though he had a straight up PhD from Harvard in like astronomy, like so he's really like, qualified, smart so person. Qu- right. Qualified. Mm-hmm. He's the one for the job, but security risk. Can't do it. Gotta go. Right. Right. Huge security risk. Um, okay. So he was fired. The country was focusing more on domestic policy now, coming off of two world wars and an economic depression that some would consider great. Mm. The Vietnam War had just begun, and the country is on the precipice of the civil rights movement. The Stonewall riots are still 12 years in the future. In the midst of this all, so that's kind of like the framework, in the midst of it, A gay couple dressed in suits with flowers pinned to their lapels exchanged vows and celebrated committing their lives to one another in a small ceremony in North Philadelphia. Friends gathered and took photos to commemorate the smiling faces and first kisses. The grooms had their first dance and cut a wedding cake while blinds remained drawn in the background. Soon after, this couple brought their film to be developed at a drugstore on the corner of North Broad Street and Allegheny Ave in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, the men in the photos never did receive any prints back. The drugstore owner, after developing the photos, refused to give them back to the couple since he considered them inappropriate and offensive. And this is this whole mystery really rests on the fact that before instant photos, people could just straight up look through your things and then it was legal for them to be like no i don't like that so you can't have it which is weird if it feels like a complete invasion of privacy like how are you just gonna look at someone's private photos like that's the only way to get like film developed unless you yourself are developing film so it's like there's gotta be some rule but then again back then rules like really weren't in place people did not really think things through it was just kind of like a free-for-all just like mind-boggling to me that people could like look at your personal photos and then you'd be like mm, no it's not it's not your it's job not to look yours. at them like right you can't yes. tell me no and also i'm paying you to do this like i'm paying for this service right this was like all totally legal like hunky-dory people were just like going through your shit like oh right. i don't like this trash but like it definitely wasn't never i would imagine I'm, I'm not saying this with any definitive proof but like it was probably not used to catch serial abusers or other Right. Other people who could be causing harm with images. And like, it was not used in that way. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it was used as an invasion of privacy in this way to be like, oh, you're doing shit I don't agree with. I'll just take those. Which imagine like your photos in your camera roll right now and you went to CBS and had to stand there while the person printing your photos was just like, I don't like this one. Like, that's so, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh. You'd have to rethink everything. The amount of the weird photos I have in my camera roll. Like, right. And somebody could just go through it. And mm. also, sodomy laws were in effect in most mm-hmm. U.S. states until the 70s. So it's like w- the fact that not only could this company or business refuse, you know, the right to serve or whatever that saying is like, we refuse mm-hmm. the right for service. But also like th- that they could report this to the police and be like, these mm-hmm. two people are, uh, you know, engaging in, in acts yes. and you go into their home right now and catch them and, ar- and, and mm-hmm. arrest them. Like it's yes. just, there's, there's a lot of implications that come with going to a public place and having that it, like, discovered about you and then that person being like yeah you don't get these back because then the proof is out there that Mm -hmm. this is who you are this is what you're engaged in everybody else that was at that wedding is in these photos like it puts a lot Mm -hmm. of people on a public display it's it's just it's wild no you're absolutely right and like that's a really really important backdrop to consider in all of this so Mm -hmm. they bring the photos to get developed 
kind of knowing all of this, or at least all of those things you just said were definitely existing at the time too. And so they never did get those wedding photos, but a store employee held on to them for years. I don't entirely know why, and they didn't seemingly report to anyone about it, but just kind of kept them. And then when the store employee died, she passed them on to her daughter, like she gave them to her daughter, and her daughter like didn't really know what to do with them, which kind of seems fair because they're yeah. just kind of like random like images of people you don't photos. know. <laughs> yeah. So she sold them on eBay, which okay. She's, so she those? sold them on. Well, thankfully, the purchaser recognized that this would be significant based on the time period that the photos were taken and the fact that it was okay. a same-sex couple. So the purchaser from eBay kind of realized this and donated 21 photos to the one national gay and lesbian archives in los angeles and the john j wilcox archives in philly who now own the copyrights to these very important and honestly very cute historical photos the mystery is that we don't know still who the people in these photos are and there is a couple reasons for that, and you may already have formulated some in your head, but there's also kind of an effort to try and maybe find them or find more about this story. And I want to consider the facts that we've touched on sort of consistently throughout our episodes of this structural homophobia that was present in American life at the time. So same-sex marriage was certainly not legal or permissible in any state. Massachusetts, which was the first state to legalize same-sex marriage, did so in 2003, which was 19 years ago from today, and it did not become federal law until 2015 in the Obergefell v. Hodges case, Supreme Court case. These photos were discovered nearly 60 years after they were taken, so the wedding and the couple became a mystery that some filmmakers and historians wanted to solve or know more about. Filmmakers PJ Palmer and Neil Bayer of Law and Order SVU fame, by the way. Mm. <laughs> so like mysteries all around. Along with writer Michael J. Wolf set out on a mission to identify the men and created and are in the process of creating a docu-series about the photos and their progress kind of on this search, especially considering that the men would now be in their 80s or 90s likely. Oh my god. So PJ Palmer, one of the creators of the future docu-series said, Quote, we are recovering amazing, important stories, all sorts of them, and more gay history that's been buried. There is a very rich history that's been suppressed. I wish as a child that I had seen family photos of a marriage like this. I would have felt more normal as a kid. I would have known that I was okay, unquote. So these photos meant a lot to a lot of people, and the producers and filmmakers of the docuseries wanted to get the photos back to their rightful owners who never did get to see photos of their ceremony and hopefully learn more about the story behind this wedding, which from the pictures also seems like it was actually officiated by some kind of clergy member. Mm. So it, it looks like a religious person. I'm going to, as kind of an aside... We do share all of our photos on Instagram, but they are copyrighted by these archives. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure that we'll be able to access them, but instead we can access, we can share the links with you so you can see them. You'll definitely be able to see them, but I don't know if we'll be able to share the exact images on Instagram. So in their search to kind of find the people in these photos, the documentarians poured over photos and asked for help via Facebook, Instagram, and their website. And kind of through interviews with outlets like the BBC who were sharing information about the story. This kind of like internet sleuthing went as far as to zoom in on a photo containing a rotary phone to see if there were any listed numbers, which I guess like with rotary phones, people often listed a phone number right in the center of the dial, I guess. And so they thought maybe they could track their phone number through that. They couldn't, they couldn't see it or there was nothing listed there. They tried to identify any like niche books or specific items in the background of photos, which seemed to be taken at the men's or a friend's home. Like mm -hmm. it seemed like a sort of a home. And people were even trying to track down 
orders from the specific bread company that provided a oh loaf of God. bread, which appeared in one of the photos. That is all so wild. Like people are really, they're like doing, they're, they're looking digging. at all of the details and really trying to figure out who these people are. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so the creators of the docuseries and the brains behind the website, Our One Story, which is where I got a lot of information from this. And those are the people who are kind of collecting the information for the docuseries. They have been explicit about protecting everyone's privacy throughout this process, stating, quote, we have been working extremely hard on maintaining privacy with the many contacts and leads we have spoken to. And as for the photos themselves, we continue to work closely with the archives under their guidance and policies for privacy, which in short, because the photos have been placed in the archives, they, like all artifacts the archives hold, are there for the public. But if we do find the subjects or their families and they request privacy, we will protect it. The photos themselves were made public when they went to the archives, but the names and stories may end up private if that's how our search unfolds. So... As far as I can tell from researching this past week and as of recording, there has not been released that they even have found the people and just haven't released their names. There's not that much evidence of that. Mm -hmm. And the docuseries is still in production, but it's extraordinary to know that these photos exist, but it is much less so knowing that the subjects may never have gotten to see them for themselves. Mm -hmm. Some speculate that it was never safe for the men to reveal their identities once the images were revealed, especially because they came out in 2013 when same-sex marriage was still not federally recognized. And all the times leading up to that, Jared, all the things that you mentioned and we've talked about before. So it's also possible that revealing identities of people who were there at the wedding, not just the men who were married, may have put others or those people at risk as well. Some who have also been invested in the search for a while now have noted that the men may at this point never be found because of old age. Again, they were probably 20s or 30s in 1950, so they would be in their 80s or 90s now, and or they moved or have passed away during the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. If you're interested in looking at the images, maybe seeing if there's anything you recognize or seeing the one story kind of pages and what they've put together so far you can visit the images at archives in los angeles and philadelphia and check out the our one story website and on instagram and facebook to see photos and to stay up to date with their progress as well as when the docuseries will be coming out i think production was stalled in 2019 and 2020 um for those who don't know there was a pandemic i haven't been able to find a set like release date as far as I know. And we're recording this in May, 2022. But if we see any updates, we'll post them to our Instagram too. But be sure to check out the photos Mm -hmm. and see what they've kind of tracked so far on the Our One Story website. So that's our still unsolved mystery, but very fascinating. So frustrating, so frustrating. Mm -hmm. So a few things. One, like you're saying, there's so many possibilities that could have happened with these people. Either they're not alive anymore. They have moved away. They're still didn't want to come forward and claim photos after all these times. Mm-hmm. They've forgotten about the photos. Like something. There's something in there. And I just want to know so badly, like what has happened to these people? Like what were, right. what did their lives turn into? Like what did they do? Where did they go? Did they have a family? Like mm-hmm. w- were they ever able to be out? Were like, there's just so many Mm-hmm. unanswered questions and I just want to know all about them yeah it's it's so so interesting to know that this was happening at a time when I think we all recognize that obviously queer people and relationships and same-sex relationships were happening at this time but I think this is the first like photographic evidence that like a full traditional marriage ceremony was mm-hmm. taking place like they were, you know, like cutting a wedding cake together and like having their first dance and like very much as we would imagine a wedding would look, but, you know, nearly 60 years before same-sex marriage was like officially legalized across the United States. So it's so interesting to know, like you said, what kind of happened with them and also 
sort of the people who were there at the time, how mm-hmm. this was organized and sort of right. made possible. And all the people who really like held their privacy and their safety too, like yeah. recognizing that importance. So all around, I think this is a really quite a fascinating mystery. One thing that I think is most frustrating to me is like, did they ever get to see same-sex marriage mm-hmm. legalized? Mm-hmm. Did they ever only know a world where... They had to have a ceremony behind closed curtains in their living room or were they able to see a country that would have accepted them? So that's sad and very Mm -hmm. frustrating. Yeah. It's very sad also because they may not have ever been able to see their own wedding photos. Mm -hmm. And, and they're very nice. They're very nice. Just as you, I love personally, I love like going to weddings and seeing people's wedding photos. Cause I think there's just so much joy and you've like felt that in these photos yeah. too, like friends, family, all of the people that were there, the there's just like so much joy yeah. and nobody, they may never have gotten to see that right. either, which is difficult. Right. And the second thing I wanted to bring up was someone that you mentioned said that they wish they had seen photos like this when they were a kid. That's, mm-hmm. That is why we are doing this podcast and why we're asking for people to write in their own stories because it's like the more that other people know about things like this, the more representation there is, even if it's not representation in mainstream media like we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. like on TV, still seeing people in your life and or in just like average lives just living their life and you know just doing just like people things like the more normalized it becomes, the more you realize like Mm -hmm. this is okay, this is normal, like this is... I'm fine how I am. So I think if kids were able to also see just like normal queer people living their lives and having successful lives as they grow up, like it just makes things so much easier, so much more bearable and like so much more Mm -hmm. worth the wait. Yeah. So I think it is really, really sweet that these photos exist. It's just a shame that not more people have been able to see them. They haven't really Mm -hmm. found their owners yet. Hope they do soon. I really, really hope so. Yeah, I do too. Or at least someone that, mm-hmm. you know, knew them that would recognize the, well, you know, that's... like that would be able to see them and, and find that same sort of right. joy in them and be able to hold them as like a family heirloom rather than um, just kind of like archive. But that's also the thing too, right? Were they mm-hmm. kicked out by their families? Were they estranged from their families? Right. Did they ever have children? Were there people that could have right. gotten these? Like there's a possibility that there's no one else in mm-hmm. this family, right? Especially at that time. There's, right. There might have not been a way to adopt or, you know, legally at least. Right. So who knows if there are people that mm-hmm. exist that belong to these photos. Right, yeah. So I think that's definitely sort of a difficult thing to grapple with, although I do definitely agree and think it's really to like emphasize and underscore that point that PJ had made and that you were just talking about that, you know, there is a lot of difficulty in knowing that the people in these photos may have had a lot of challenges in their life, may have never been able to see them in the way that we're all seeing them now Mm -hmm. or have been able to see progress. But the fact that this existed is a really, really important piece of history and could be very impactful for other people to see and know that their existence, you know, deserves and like all of the same things and it's completely valid and beautiful. And so I think that's a really good sort of takeaway from these two. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for your story and everyone go look at those photos. Yes. Let's find where the bread is from. We can do it. Where's the bread from? So this week I'm staying in kind of the same time period. My story takes place a little bit before, but we will travel into the 1950s. But this week I'm going to be talking to you about the famous movie star and icon, James Dean. Mm, I actually don't know if I could pick him out of a lineup. (laughs) Really? James Dean was, uh, not to spoil it, was like, the all-American bad boy movie star. Mm. Everyone loved him. 
little sure. bit of a Sure, he's rebel. made an appearance in a couple songs. Taylor Swift. Yes. Halsey's, yes. Halsey's New Americana. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, he, got it. Big influence. So, okay, before we get into all of that, sources that I use this week are an Esquire article by Jason Colavito, which I heavily used, a History.com article by Jess or Jesse Greenspan, jamesdean.com mainly his biography and autobiography Mm -hmm. and the james dean wikipedia which i also heavily used okay on february 8th 1931 in marion indiana in the seven gables apartment on the corner of fourth street and mcclure street mildred marie dean gives birth to james byron dean james is the only child of mildred and winton dean a farmer turned dental technician who moves the Dean family from Indiana to Santa Monica, California, when James is around six. James is incredibly close with his mother, Mildred, who apparently is the only person capable of really understanding him. In 1938, when James is around seven, Mildred is unexpectedly struck with stomach pain and quickly begins to lose weight, and a few years later, she dies of uterine cancer when James is around nine. And unable to care for his son, Winton Dean sends James to live with his aunt and uncle on their farm in Fairmount, Indiana, and it's here that James is raised in their Quaker household. While in Indiana, James seeks the counsel and friendship of a local Methodist pastor who introduces James to bullfighting, car racing, and theater, of which the last two James will take a really strong liking to for the rest of his life. It seems like a weird... Mix it's a weird of trio yeah of uh-huh. like hobbies like you're right. qualified and in, to introduce someone to all three of those things i guess it's indiana <laughs> i don't know i guess i i didn't think about that too hard but you're right it is indiana so it seems like that might be that's more of like reason. an indiana niche thing like yeah yeah okay. I, I don't know if they necessarily like went and did these things but it seems like they talked about them and and those were like the three that james like really i think that's even on. weirder if they it just might talked be. about them but go ahead okay so he has hobbies at school james is an exceptional and popular student he plays on the baseball and varsity basketball teams he studies drama and he competes in public speaking competitions he's basically like the original troy bolton he's just like a clean cut all-american boy got it and during his senior year of high school james allegedly begins a more intimate relationship with this methodist pastor but there are also claims that the sexual relationship wasn't consensual and may have been sexual abuse that lasted for a few years, although neither allegations have been confirmed nor denied. There's no physical proof, not that a victim needs mm-hmm. physical proof of sexual abuse. Sure. He did confide in the actress Elizabeth Taylor mm-hmm. years down the line, saying that he had been sexually abused by a minister shortly after okay. his mom's death. It could be this mm-hmm. guy. I don't right. have enough info to not making any concrete statements, but certainly it's important to take into account like what a survivor would label as, but it sounds like there's definitely a clear age difference, a clear element right. of vulnerability within this Power relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly like just, it seems like maybe this was a very on top of being a teenager, a very difficult time in his life. And mm-hmm. Either way, like regardless, this person was older. Right. So that does kind of, I think, lend itself to that potentially being in a harmful relationship. Absolutely. After graduating high school in 1949, James moves back to California and moves in with his father and new stepmother, enrolls in Santa Monica College and majors in pre-law, although he transfers to UCLA for one semester and changes his major to drama, and this move actually results in estrangement from his father. So his father is like, oh, you want to be an actor? That's not a man's job. Get out of my house. Okay, that's a bummer. Also, considering lawyers are just actors, friends, let's own it. Theater kids and lawyers are not that different. Let's all, let's all just leave it in the past. Lawyers are better paid actors. Sure. At UCLA, James rooms with William Bast, who would become a screenwriter, one of James's closest friends, and his biographer. William would reveal in his 2006 book called Surviving James Dean that one night while staying at a hotel in San Diego, the two had been lovers, but there were difficult circumstances of their involvement 
including that James and William both had girlfriends at college. Mm, That complicates things. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) Also, while at UCLA, James rushes the fraternity Sigma Nu. He's also chosen out of 350 men to play Malcolm in Macbeth, the character who overthrows Macbeth, and begins attending a popular acting workshop. Shortly thereafter, James drops out of college entirely to pursue a full-time career as an actor. A fraternity brother brings James along to be an extra in a Pepsi-Cola commercial, which is his first appearance on television. The next day, James films a second spot in which he dances around a jukebox while singing a Pepsi jingle. The producer on the commercials likes him so much that he hires James to star as John the Apostle in Hill No. 1, a TV special that airs on Easter 1951. It's a small part with only a few speaking lines, but it's enough for some girls at a local Los Angeles Catholic school to form his first fan club, the Immaculate Heart James Dean Appreciation <laughs> Society. Oh, that's too good. That's <laughs> that's too good. Someone check on Catholic school girls. Please check on them. Make sure they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> and during the same period of filming Hill Number 1, James works at the Iverson Movie Ranch, which is a ranch partially dedicated to film and TV production where a tomb of Jesus is built on location for the Easter special. And from working here, he gets three walk-on roles in movies, the first being a soldier in Fixed Bayonets in 1951, second being a boxing corner man in Sailor Beware in 1952, and thirdly, a youth in Has Anybody Seen My Gal in 1952 as well. Oh, he's a youth. And despite these walk-on roles, James struggles to get cast in anything more substantial. He also works as a parking lot attendant at CBS Studios, which is where he meets Rogers Brackett, a radio director for an advertising agency who offers James professional help slash career guidance, as well as a place to stay. So in the summer of 1951, around the age of 20, James moves in with Rogers Brackett, who then buys James nice clothes, he takes him out to fancy Mm. dinners, and introduces James to other Hollywood people, not to mention that the men share a bed while living together. Although sharing a bed didn't necessarily seem like James's idea, it kind of seemed like it was more of like, oh, crash on my couch, and then they get there and they're like, if you want to just share, like, share my bed with me, like, I'm okay with that. Sure. Yeah, I definitely think sharing a bed doesn't have to be sexual but it sounds like the surrounding nature of this relationship is i mean like you live in la you're making it out in hollywood but if someone approached you (laughs) is it often that roommates are sharing beds in los angeles as they're trying to break into the biz in the 1950s could Mm, probably not i'm saying now as you as a big famous la man i think that's the trend probably not okay I, okay. I, yeah, I think it might be a safe assumption. Well, okay. Well, let me tell you the, ne- the next thing. Okay, we'll tell make me the decisions. next part. Okay. So many label this relationship as like a quote unquote kept boy relationship, meaning that James was being kept by Rogers by way of money and influence in the film industry. And Rogers later states that his main interest in James was as an actor, although, quote, I loved him and Jimmy loved me. If it was a father son relationship, it was also somewhat incestuous. Which is like just so you just shouldn't weird. have said that. It that just, made it weird. It made it real weird. Over the next year, under the wing of Rogers Brackett, James accomplishes a lot. He appears on a radio drama produced by Rogers. He moves to New York City on Rogers' dime. He works as a stunt tester for a game show, but is fired because he completes the tasks too quickly. And he also appears in episodes of several CBS television series. While in New York, James and William Bass become roommates again for a short while, and they continue their friendship. In 1952, James gets a non-speaking part in the movie Deadline USA starring Humphrey Bogart, and he gains access to the very exclusive Actor Studio, a professional organization to study method acting under famed actor and director Lee Strasberg. James would write to his family, quote, I have made great strides in my craft. After months of auditioning, I am very proud to announce that I am a member of the Actor Studio, the greatest school of the theater. It houses great people like Marlon Brando, Julie Harris, Arthur Kennedy, Mildred Dunnick. Very few people get into it, and it is absolutely free. It is the best thing that can happen to an actor. 
I am one of the youngest to belong. If I can keep this up and nothing interferes with my progress, one of these days I might be able to contribute something to the world, end quote. So he definitely loves acting. He loves what he's doing. He's with these people that he will then go on to work with in the field Mm -hmm. later on when everybody's famous. Like he really, he's just, he's proud of himself. He's built himself up from basically nothing. Like he really is making it and it's showing that he is actually talented. Definitely. He's taking on a pride in it. He's excited and he's definitely like, he's not making it up either. Like you said, he's actually like making substantial gains. Right. And while in New York, he meets actresses Liz Sheridan, best known for playing Seinfeld's mother on Seinfeld, who actually just passed away last month, and Barbara Glenn. Liz calls their relationship kind of magical and first love for both of them, and Barbara's relationship with James is on again, off again for about two years, and they have plenty of love letters between the two of them. So he has Mm -hmm. two pretty substantial relationships with women while in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Also in 1952, with the help of Rogers Brackett, James makes his Broadway debut in the starring role for a play called See the Jaguar, which has kind of a short run. But after this, James's career begins to really pick up. He acts in a few other television episodes, but what really jams his foot in the door of Hollywood is his performance as a, quote, pandering homosexual North African houseboy, end quote, in a 1954 stage play adaptation of the book The Immoralist. This role effectively gets him to Hollywood, where he completes a screen test at Warner Brothers for the part of Cal Trask in the screen adaptation of John Steinbeck's novel East to Eden. While on the search for their Cal Trask, the director of the film says they're looking for a Brando for the role, and so James is suggested because he's young, not as known, maybe he would be up for it. So while in Hollywood for the screen test, James also meets with John Steinbeck, the actual author, who admits later that he didn't like the moody, complex young man personally, but he thinks that he would be perfect for the part. Okay. And so James is then cast in the role, and on April 8th, 1954, he leaves New York City and heads for Los Angeles to begin shooting. Hollywood rumors about James's sexuality begin almost as soon as he signs a contract with Warner Brothers and his name makes the papers. Whispers circulate that he's gay or bisexual, although he doesn't fit the description exactly. He likes sports and cars. He isn't like this campy or flamboyant stereotype. He doesn't identify with other queer stereotypes, but still people begin to talk. Warner Brothers decides to promote James alongside Rock Hudson and Tab Hunter, two closeted gay actors, as the studio's most eligible bachelors looking for wives. (laughs) And the studio is really set on finding these men female partners to dispel any rumors and hide their sexuality from the public with what is often called lavender marriages. And the official excuse from the studio is, quote, They say their rehearsals are in conflict with their marriage rehearsals, meaning they're just too busy to date right now. They've just been too busy. So that's the only reason why they don't have wives yet. They're just workaholics. Don't read into it too much. Right. Don't read into it at all. Also, yeah, you just don't have to. To to be fair, you just also don't have to. You could just mind your business, but... Mm -hmm. So during this search for a wife... James burns through a series of unfulfilling, intense, tempestuous relationships with women. He often bursts into anger and rudeness and aggression, even while in public, likely for the fact of having to jump through all of these hoops just to satisfy the studio and the public. It's like he's constantly having to prove something about himself time and time again, but like for no real reason. Right. Also, maybe it's just like a little bit of self-sabotage and like regardless of whether or not like his like what his sexuality was anytime you're forced to be with someone like imagine having to constantly be on blind dates even if it was someone you would potentially date or like would be attracted to that sucks that's really annoying so like you probably are just like i don't want to do this anymore right and he kind of alludes to his sexuality so Upon a reporter asking James if he's gay, James responds, no, I'm not a homosexual, but I'm also not going through life with one hand tied behind my back. So he's kind of being like, I'm not gay, but I'm not opposed to it. Like he (laughs) is, he is a little bit like throwing it out there. Right. He's not, he's like, I'm not being forced to I'll try anything once, you know? I think. I'm not saying no. That's what it sounds like to me too. Right. I don't think there's another way to 
necessarily interpret that. Yeah. Okay. At this time, though, while filming East of Eden, he's jumping through these hoops, James meets Italian actress Pier Angeli while she was shooting a film on an adjoining Warner lot. They exchange items of jewelry as love tokens, and their relationship moves pretty quickly. They go to the beach and hide away from the public, fooling around and talk for hours about life and death, shooting the shit like college students their age would. Pierre's mother doesn't like James on the account of his casual attire, late dates, fast cars, drinking, and for the fact that he isn't a Catholic. Although, James is so in love with Pierre that he promises he will let their children be raised in the church. Pierre, although, is unexpectedly married shortly after to an Italian-American singer, and nothing more became of James's relationship with her. However, commentators such as William Bast, who was one of James Dean's closest friends, speculates that these stories and this relationship is just a publicity stunt. Pierre Angeli only talks about her relationship with James later in life in an interview, and many claim that her vivid stories are more so just wishful fantasies. After rapping on East of Eden, James moves back to New York to appear in four more television dramas, but then in 1955, he is cast in the role of Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause. This is maybe what he's most known for. And upon getting this role, James packs up his life in New York and officially moves to Hollywood. Reeling from his success in East of Eden and celebrating his new role, James purchases his first Porsche and enters the Palm Springs road races, finally able to materialize his interest in motor racing. A month before shooting Rebel, James competes and wins first place in the novice class and second place in the main event. Then, as he's shooting Rebel, James enters the Bakersfield race, where he finishes first in his class and third overall. So, with multiple racing wins under his belt, James has his eye set on the Indianapolis 500, an incredibly famous motor car race in Indiana, but his busy Rebel shooting schedule prevents him from doing so. Also, they raced Porsches in the Indy 500? Or they did? Yeah. Interesting. Like, all really nice cars. Like, just... Because those were, like, original sports cars like race cars Uh, yeah i guess i get you're right right. like ford versus ferrari so rebel without a cause is a way for james to defy studio censorship in the heart of homophobic 1950s along with director nicholas ray the two men actually decide to weave a queer love story into the film which questioned what masculinity meant in a post-war world as the Esquire article notes, quote, Dean advised his co-star, Salminio, to play up his character Plato's attraction to Dean, which he then reciprocated with knowing looks. Dean ended the film weeping hysterically over Plato's death, a lover's lament. Generations of queer men saw hope in cinema's first sympathetic depiction of same-sex teenage love, and it's only such depiction for more than a generation, but few straight viewers noticed for half a century. Even the National League for Decency, a Catholic moral watchdog, rated the film, quote, unobjectionable. The film proves hugely successful and popular amongst teenagers. Boys idol him and dress like him, girls want to be his girlfriend, and older generations don't care for him. So that's when you know you're doing it right. (laughs) They call him unmanly, too vain, effeminate, and too sensitive, and not to mention that James's sexuality, again, is brought up and raked over. Nicholas Ray, director of the film, also weighs in on James's sexuality at some point, saying, James was not straight. He was not gay. He was bisexual. That seems to confuse people, or they just ignore the facts. Some, mm-hmm. most, will say he was a heterosexual, and there was some proof for that. Others will say, no, he was gay, and there was some proof for that too, keeping in mind that it's always tougher to get that kind of proof. But Jimmy himself said more than once that he swung both ways. So why all the mystery or confusion? <laughs> Just like creating drama where there is none. Like, right. it's not like maybe there was some ambiguity, but like overall, just people like, no, I refuse to believe it. So I will keep creating this narrative. And on, I think it was the Esquire article, like there's a comment section, right? And so mm-hmm. some guy who was alive during this time was like, yeah, we knew he was bisexual back then. Like it's it's nothing <laughs> new. Like why is everybody making yeah, such a big shocking. thing about it? And so I think his point was like, yeah, like the terms may not have been fully there or may not have been like okay. as 
okay. widely accepted, but like everyone kind sure. of had a working understanding of right that James Dean was not fully straight and he was not Definitely. fully gay. Definitely. It's probably not, even if the words may have been different, not like conceptually that difficult to understand. And it seems more like this was like a really good like fodder for gossip, which people love to do with celebrities. A hundred percent. And also there's like a whole thing about how James Dean and Marlon Brando got together, which are like two of the biggest Mm -hmm. male movie stars that represent masculinity. So like it is a big. Right. Again, it's like a gotcha, you know. People just needed at this time to have access to writing their own fan fiction rather than yes. like start rumors, and we would be in a different. We place. would be oh my god, utopia. Mm-hmm. Truly, truly. So James signs up for a motor race in Santa Barbara on Memorial Day, nineteen fifty-five, but he's unable to finish the competition due to a blown piston. His racing career is then instantly put on hold when Warner Brothers bars him from all racing during the production of his next film, Giant. So, not wanting to be stuck getting typecast as a rebellious teenager, James takes the role of Jet Rink, a Texan ranch hand who strikes oil and becomes wealthy in the 1956 film, Giant, James's final film. So, after Giant finishes filming, James is itching to get back to racing. He trades in his Porsche Speedster for a more powerful Porsche 550 Spider and enters the upcoming Salinas Road Race scheduled for October 1st, 1955. A German mechanic who works on James's car suggests that he drive the car from Los Angeles to Salinas to break it in, and it's about a five to six hour trip north, so a few days before the race, on September 30th, James and a few others begin this trek. At 3.30 p.m., James's car is pulled over by a cop, and James is ticketed for speeding. Two hours later, around 5.45 p.m., as James and his group are headed north, a 1950 Ford Tudor, driven by a 23-year-old college student, turns onto the highway ahead of the oncoming Porsche. Unable to stop in time, James's car slams into the passenger side of the Ford, and his car goes bouncing across the pavement onto the side of the highway. The German mechanic... James's passenger is thrown from the car while James is trapped inside and sustains numerous injuries, including a broken neck. There are multiple witnesses of the crash who stop to help, and an ambulance comes and whisks James off to a nearby hospital. Unfortunately, he's announced dead on arrival at 6.20 p.m. about 30 minutes later. And so news spreads rapidly of James's untimely death, devastating fans all over the world. Fan clubs spring up mourning the 24-year-old. He's only 24 at this time. William Bast recalls getting the phone call of James's death the night before he was supposed to move into James's Sherman Oaks home. As William would recall, after a long, confusing courtship full of starts and stops, denials and doubts, James wanted them to live together as partners and lovers, not just as friends. After his death, Both Rebel Without a Cause and Giant are released, garnering James massive amounts of posthumous fame, including Academy nominations for Best Actor in both films. He did not win either year, but he is the first actor to have been nominated for Best Actor after death. Mm -hmm. James Dean leaves behind a massive legacy for a young actor who only starred in three films— I mean, granted, he was in a lot of television and theater, but he really is known for these three films that he's been in. He defined a new generation of breaking boundaries, especially stereotypes of what it meant to be a man, and inspired many famous actors, musicians, and other artists to begin their crafts. His life has been an anomaly to many, and his story has been passed around and repurposed plenty of times, biographers trying to constantly unearth the, quote, real James Dean. His memory gets intertwined with the characters he's played on screen and on the stage, and the real person often gets lost. To many, he's a mystery, and for others, they're able to see him for what he truly was, a complex queer person who is able to express the hopes and fears of young people everywhere, an icon for those struggling to find themselves under the immense pressure of expectation. And that is the introduction to the one and only James Dean. I think I need to start reading the stories before you tell them to me. Because I'm so sorry. I just like didn't know that that was going to happen. And I think that that's like a, it happens quite often in a, so in kind of an unrelated story, 
my friend, one of my friends and I laughed about this, that I went to see the House of Gucci movie and literally mm-hmm. had no idea how that ended at all. And then got to the end and was like, what? Yeah. No one told me. And I was like, there's a huge twist. We were, I was like, with her drunk telling people in a bar that there was this huge twist, everybody was like, that's literally not a twist. Like everybody no, knew that. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm having that same moment now of like, that's a pretty famous person. Why didn't I know that? And now I'm pretty sad. Because I think he was at the beginning of such a long and successful career. And we hear about the 27 Club, which is when famous people at the age right. of 27 overdose or right. die some sort right. with some sort of addiction right right with james dean he was so up and coming and this his death was out of nowhere he was racing he was being safe he was mm. doing all these things nothing was happening and then all of a sudden a 23 year old student pulled onto the highway just at right. the wrong time james had been speeding two hours before which means he's speeding up in right. his race car trying to get to this race you know having fun mm-hmm can't stop in time the guy in the truck pulled off the road he had no injuries they found that he wasn't guilty of any any he wasn't you know he wasn't the cause of the death so yeah it's just like a a happenstance it's misfortune it's just one of those things that happen that's just really really sad obviously i think it's also hard like we're all 24 like i just think like knowing that's so young and i mm-hmm. think it's just not something that i knew so that that was right. weird for me to like learn about that literally in this moment but i appreciate you telling me that story and i do think it we haven't maybe touched on so many i don't want to say openly bisexual people mm-hmm. on the show yet but at least people who were maybe a little bit more clear that that's how they identified and i think with the people we have talked about a lot of it is just that response of like no it has to be one or the other so we're just gonna like create all this gossip around it so i do really appreciate that story and the fact that both james himself and the people who were closest to him were like i don't understand why you can't get it what are we doing your heads right like this is not really difficult to understand. And if you're having trouble understanding it, like this is kind of the end of the discussion. It's Right, it whatever. is what it is. Like, And so at least in, you know, his short life, he did seem to embrace that and have experiences mm-hmm. that, you know, some other people may not have been able to have because of their sexuality. And so I think maybe that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that thank you for kind of telling me all of that story. Yeah, of course. There's an article that I didn't really use. I wasn't sure if I wanted to use it, but there is an article from The Guardian called Mad About the Boy by Jermaine Greer. And there is a quote in it that I think sums up his legacy and, you know, mm-hmm. what you were just saying. Uh, it says, in the 1950s, homosexuality was so far off of the suburban radar that Jimmy Dean could give us all visual clues and we would see nothing. He could flirt outrageously with the camera and get away with it. There was no gay establishment. Young men growing up, quote unquote, different, had no easy way of identifying what it was that troubled them or why it was that they couldn't fit in with teen culture of dating and necking and boasting. And so James Dean, although maybe a bit subversively in his movies, because at this time we have the Hays Code going on. Right. You know, he couldn't openly be like, my character's bi or gay or queer or whatever. So he's doing right. it subversively. He is giving an entire generation an idol to look up to and content Mm -hmm. to consume so i mean even though it was a short career he definitely did so much more than people even know yeah absolutely and one thing i will say too is oftentimes when people pass away prematurely or have other i think gossip maybe or drama surrounding their death that's what you remember them from and considering like i said this is the first time i heard that part of this story i would say the legacy sort of surpasses that you know it it is more focused on the impact he had in the films that he was in and and what that meant for generations worth of viewers and Mm -hmm. so that's i think the fact that he was able to accomplish that is really amazing absolutely absolutely All right, and so now that our story stories for the week are over, let's get into some listener stories. We have a few, so do you want to go first? 
Sure, I'm very thrilled to be able to read some of these. Thank you for sending them in again. We really appreciate it. The story I'm going to be reading tonight was sent in through Instagram from Gay Aristo. That's the Instagram handle. Be sure to check them out. And thank you so much for taking the time to send us your story. All right, so they write... I came out to my mother at 19 and she freaked. She told me I would go to hell. She had a nervous breakdown and drove into oncoming traffic. My brother said I was killing our mother. So I went back into the closet. My brother and father both died when I was 40. My mother only lasted 14 months and then died. She never knew the whole me, but I still managed to have a wonderful relationship with her. If you love someone, sometimes it's also about accepting their limitations. She loved me, but was an older generation and Catholic and couldn't understand same-sex love. I've worked hard on my mental health, my relationship with God, and my personal relationships. I've always been out to everyone except my late parents. I'm now married to a wonderful man. Our eight-year anniversary is in November, and I'm owning my sexuality with the gay Aristo. It's been a huge journey of pain and love, but love was always there. I just had to work hard to find it with my family. So thank you, thank you for sharing that story with us and being vulnerable and it is an honor to have you listening to our stories and to have gotten the chance to share yours. So thank you very much. All right. And I have a few different stories from my friend, Evie. Thanks, Evie. Yeah, thank you, Evie. Here goes nothing. One time when I was 11, we went to the Mall of America for Black Friday at 1am with my older neighbor friends and my sister and I almost got trampled in an Aeropostale and it was like the first time I'd ever been out that late. And we went into a Victoria's Secret and it was super crowded because it was the middle of the night on Black Friday and (laughs) I was so tired and didn't want to be there and I was looking up at the ads of women in their Victoria's Secret bras and underwear and I was like... I'm gay, aren't I? And I got super hot, which looking back was probably a panic attack. And I would go on to not really address that for a decade. (laughs) And I tried Red Bull for the first time that night too. Oh my gosh, your hormones. Just so many things, so (laughs) many things going on. (laughs) Another time when I was eight, I was sleeping on the floor next to my female cousin and she flopped her arm onto me and I picked it up and moved it over. And she must've thought I was grabbing her arm and she went, are you a lesbo or something? And I lied awake for like an hour thinking of how I could convince her I wasn't a lesbo, which looking back is hilarious because she's my cousin. I don't know why she would even interpret it like that in the first place, but she must've just learned that concept. And then finally, Evie writes, oh, and I'm going to change the name of one of the people in this story. So it's not the name I say is not the real, real person. One time, me and my childhood best friend hugged in front of this guy Jeff's desk in fourth grade. I think we had been fighting and were like forgiving each other or something. And Jeff was like, they hugged right in front of my desk. And I guess he went on to say we were gay. And my weird teacher, who is all obsessed with knitting, had to sit us down and be like, there's no such thing as a gay child, which I couldn't tell if it was homophobic or not. Probably yes. And me and that childhood best friend did go on to hook up. So Jeff was right. Also, fuck you, Jeff. Fuck you, Jeff, and the teacher that's like, there's no gay children. (laughs) That definitely is homophobic, because what does it mean? I have so many questions, but um, (laughs) but thank you for sharing those those stories and taking the time to write them. Thank you, They they really gave me a good laugh, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, after that, those sad stories. Please keep on writing stories. Send them either through Instagram at this point or historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We want to hear all of your stories. We want to hear from you. So make sure to send those in and do it right now. Do it now. Thanks for tuning in to episode 15 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about queerness on film. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even sharing a bed with a stranger in Los Angeles a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really. And make sure to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.